please welcome to the Apple Store Covent Garden in London, tonight's host, Robin Ince. Hello. Um, this is a very exciting evening. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to be introducing uh, a man I've met on, on two other wonderful and exciting occasions. You will know much about him already. You will know uh, that he is a great actor. He's a great explorer. His credits, Zed Cars, I, Claudius, Cats. Uh, the first time that I ever did any show with Brian Blessed, there was Brian Blessed and Brian Cox on together which is two Brian's, but with very different vocal delivery. And Brian Blessed's first question, Brian Cox turned to me and went, uh, Brian, how do you feel about intergalactic space travel? To which he replied, I've always wanted to go to Mars! Why can't we go to Mars? Tell me, Brian, why aren't we on Mars? And it stayed at that level for the ensuing two hours. So, I think we are going to have a lot of fun. He has a wonderful book out. Please welcome to this stage, Brian Blessed. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> anyway, it's lovely being here. What a marvel. Uh, all that you said is true. Well, I know I only told a tiny piece of the, of the, there is so much more. I mean, this is what I wanted to start asking about is one of the things is, and I love your book, by the way. It's a bloody great book, and it is a tremendously passionate book. And one thing that I would imagine a lot of the, the, the great physicist, Richard Feynman, there is a collection of his works, and it is called What Do You Care What Other People Think? And it's where his, his wife said to him, he, he had done something, he basically uh, removed some of the love letters that uh, she had given him, in fact, pencils with messages of love. And she was so annoyed that he'd felt embarrassed by messages of love, she said, what do you care what other people think? And I think one of the things about you is, I get a sense that you just go, this is me, this is what I am, and the shyness, the retiring nature are not issues with you. Yes, that's true. I suppose it's really, I mean, a, a great love of life. I've always, I just wake up in the morning, I, I can't wait to look at my face in the mirror, and I think, my God, you look bloody marvellous, Brian. I love it that I look like a gorilla, and that I have, you know, uh, frequently in the Himalayas, I'm mistaken for a yeti. And so, I love it that I look like a yeti, but I, I love my face, I think, I love life, I think... Uh, uh, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said that to love oneself is to have a lifelong romance. And I do love myself. But, and, uh, so I find it very exciting waking up and being part of life. I'm fascinated by people. I, I feel very passionately that nature doesn't cheat. Uh, that there is no one like you. I can't see. You're, you're all dark shadows. Can you light them up at all? You can't, let me, you can't see them. I love to see your faces. There you are. Light them up if you can, so I can see you. I believe that nature doesn't cheat, and that there's no one like you. And you must be allowed to express yourself and bring out your own dreams, and be given the chance to express them. That's what I feel very passionately. I'll ask you another question. Well, what I was, I was interested, I mean, you started off apparently as a tremendously ugly baby, though. I mean, you, you revealed yes, that yes, for the yes, first yes, few yes. days, you horrified the locals. Yes. You, you were considered to be something of a grotesque. Yes, yes. It was interesting that when I was born, uh, uh, which is in Mexborough, South Yorkshire, uh, that my mother was horrified. Uh, I'm the son of a coal miner. And she said, oh, God, he looks like a toad. He looks terrible. Uh, and uh, she wouldn't nurse me. Uh, and the woman in the next bed had lost her child, Mrs. Brearley. And she said, oh, well, don't worry, I'll nurse him. And so she nursed me. Uh, and uh, many years later, as I do in the book, 
I was in this television series called Zed Cars, playing PC Fancy Smith in uh, Zed Cars. Uh, and in the first episode, I was rehearsing, and one of the walk-ons came forward and said, Hello, Brian, lad. It's me, Mrs. Brearley. I looked after you when you were a little baby. And there she was, astonishing that I should meet her again in Zed Cars. Amazing. Well, you're, this is what, what I adore about the book. I mean, when I, whenever I try and kind of tell anyone that they must read this book, I say, don't worry, it doesn't go into caps lock till page four. <laughs> and, but page one starts off with a wonderful story. I won't give away the entire story, but with a beautiful line, can you smell shit in here? And it's a really full-on mountaineering story. And again, well, this, this way where you can just, your imagination, the yes. way that you, you grip us by the throat, charmingly, I might add, yes, a charming yes. strangler, yeah. and drag us into these wonderful different worlds that you've been in. Well, what is, what, what is ex extraordinary in my life is that 50% of my life is acting, and 50% I'm an explorer. I think 70% now I'm an explorer. I've been to Everest several times and climbed up there without oxygen uh, and been to the South Pole, North Pole, Aconcagua in, in, in South America. Uh, and uh, so I kind of, a lot of my life really is adventure. What was I going to say? I'm gonna, what was my point? Um, oh, damn. What was my point? We were up Everest. There was uh, the man who'd gone out. There was the shit. There was the... Uh, well, I mean, the thing is that uh, when... At the age of seven, I read about Everest and, and Mallory and Irving disappearing on Everest. The greatest expedition ever mounted on God's earth in 1924. And he was last seen near the summit. Mallory, 300 feet from the summit. 1924, 30 years before it was climbed. And he was never seen again. We don't know to this day whether he climbed it or not. And everybody wanted me to tell the story through the years. Mountaineers, actors, would I tell the story? And eventually we made the film. An amazing film called Galahad of Everest. And uh, Mallory was called Galahad. Uh, Galahad, of course, disappeared when he touched the Holy Grail. And uh, uh, so he was, that's why he was called Galahad. And so the whole thing fascinated me. And so I, I determined one day to follow in Mallory's footsteps. And of course I did. But, uh, uh, what was the point of my story? That he, um, through the, every, when I, after the age of seven, eventually in 1990, with the BBC crews, low altitude teams, Russians, Americans and Chinese, I approached the northern side. It was impossible. I was wearing jackets and clothes like this, without oxygen, just like Mallory. And there was Everest. I suddenly saw it. You know, and I'd waited for seven years. You've got to hold on to a dream. You've got to fucking hold on to a dream in your life. Don't give up. And there it was. And I sank to my knees. It was a Tibetan side. And I had David Bashirs alongside me, who does the IMAX films, a great climber. He wept, everyone wept, and there was Everest. So I can, what I'm saying is I can describe Everest most beautifully and beatifically, because at night, when I was at 23,000 feet, you see, we suffer from light pollution and noise. And on Everest, you see the Milky Way in all its glory. And, and, and myriads of stars, green, mainly green and blue, sitting on your shoulders. <gasps> and I remember being up there, and Brashears looked at me and said, 
And I said to him, what's that sound? Mm. He said, that's the sound of the earth spinning on its axis. You never quite hear it in London, the earth spinning on its axis. And so, so therefore I can talk beatifically about Everest, but when it comes to, uh, I, I mean, I, I've on many occasions had to address the Royal Geographical Society. When I came back from Everest, I had to, uh, there was a Royal Geographical Society. There were explorers. There was Princess Anne. There was Ranulph Fiennes, everybody, Bonington, everybody. And I think to a certain extent, they rather resented that an actor should be doing, mind you, I'd climbed all my life, they didn't know that. And there I was, and I looked at them, and I hadn't spoken, and there were all the ex ex fraternity explorers, hundreds of them there. And I looked at them and I said, what in fuck's name am I going to say to you lot? <laughs> and, they, and they all stood up and cheered, and we got on marvellously from that point on. And I said, I can see Sir Christian Bonington up there. Uh, well done, Chris, on your knighthood. And of course, he's the most refined man. And he said to me, Brian, when you go to Everest, he said, at 17,000 feet, he said, uh, sex stops and God takes over. You can't get a hard-on at 17,000 feet. I said, I've always meant to ask him how he found out. <laughs> the, the thought of of Bonington tossing off at 17,000 feet. <laughs> and of course, I did this at the Royal Geographical Society, which went down a storm. What I'm trying to say is, all mountaineers are dirty fucking bastards. <laughs> They're filthy. There is a poem, mountaineers have furry ears and pee through leather britches. They wipe their ass on broken glass, those hardy sons of bitches. <laughs> I also would like to say to you, which I'm saying, if you go to Everest, always make sure you camp above the French because they will shit on you from a great height. <laughs> They're terrible. You, um, being on the ice field uh, with Steve Bell, they say, Christ, Christ, Brian, they're shitting again. And they drop their trousers, the French, whatever they are, and just shit on you. Don't shit here, you dirty bastard. <laughs> Look out, turds at two o'clock. And so, on... Um, have I got news for you? Uh, Paul Merton said to me, Brian, and there's this huge audience, and said, what's it like going to the toilet on Mount Everest? I said, you really want to know? Because when you hear Bonington or Ranulph Fiennes or anybody, they, we, we had a good Danny, we had a number two, and they're very, very lovely and, uh, and sweet and well-mannered about it. But it's not true, because they're up there for weeks. And we were at 27,000 feet. There's a change at 5,000 feet. There's a change at 10,000 feet. That's the height of Mount Etna. There's a change at 15,000 feet, and that's kind of the height of Mont Blanc. At 22,500 feet, you're dying. You've got 14 days to live, and you will die of lack of atmospheric pressure, uh, shortwave ultraviolet rays, cosmic rays, gamma rays, you name it, lack of oxygen. At 25,000 feet, you have five days to live, and then you die. At 28,000 feet, where I was, uh, at, a, a, in my 70th year, I was at 28,000 feet, and you've got one day to live, and then you die, for the same reasons. And so, but at 27,000 feet, 
There were four of us in a two-man tent. There's Everest. There's Lhotse, 67 miles across. The Kumbo Icefall that kills everybody. We've gone up there. We're on Lhotse, and we were going to go for the summit. And Lhotse is, is at a four-mile drop. We managed to get our tent on it. With pittons, we put it in. The pittons were coming loose. There were four of us in this tent, a two-man tent. And there's a storm outside. And suddenly David Empleman Adams said, oh, I've got to have a shit. Now, I'm talking now about being atavistic on Everest. And I, mine was the only brain that was working. I had this gift for altitude. I said, you can't have a shit. Just shit yourself. He said, oh, I can't, Brian. I can't. I'm a gentleman. Shit your, it'll be dust in an hour. Because at altitude, the shit will turn to dust. But he wouldn't do it. <laughs> he wouldn't shit himself. So I said, oh, no, come on, come on, come on. And we got his body across us. And he got across my body. I got him to the zip. And I undid the zip. And the snow's pouring in. And it's coming loose. The tent with a four-mile fucking drop. A four-mile drop will never be seen again. And I said to him, think of your mother. Tie yourself off. There's a rope outside. Think of your mother. Think of your wife. Think of your children. Fucking think. And he went out there. And he had a shit. And he came, <laughs> he came back. We unzipped the tent. And he came through the tent. Get out of his body. Got him right to the other side. Ah. Oh. Oh, we're still alive, it had not come loose. Four of us in a two-man tent. I said, well, we might as well have a brew. We're going to be going for the summit in two hours' time. And there was a pause. And um, Graham Hoyland said, there's a terrible smell of shit. <laughs> and I turned round, and there was a turd on Emperman Adam's shoulder. Because <laughs> what had happened was, he'd had a shit, the wind had blown it up in the air, There'd been a lull in the wind, and it had landed on his shoulder. And that's the glamour of Mount Everest. And that's page I, one of the book. You don't get that in Peter Ustinov's Dear Me. I have to say that um, oh, um, Kenneth Branagh always says, well, Brian, you're not frightened of anything in life. And in the book, this is so. I don't fear death. Death doesn't exist for me. I think life is the last word, and, and, and death is not. But while we were filming Galahad of Everest, he won all these Grand Prix, he won an Oscar for the BBC. It's not my film, it's John Paul Davidson's film, with me going up there. And halfway through the film, the BBC said, we want you to film with Rhino Mesner. Now, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, Mesner, Mesner, is the greatest mountaineer, even more than Mallory, who's ever lived. He climbed the Eiger North Wall in about seven hours. It normally takes about 20 weeks. He has uh, done the North Pole, South Pole, you name it. He did a Scott of the Antarctic expedition as a holiday. He ran all the way there, ran all the way back. He climbed Everest without oxygen for the first time. The North Side, solo. Ah, all mountaineers bowed to Mesner. The BBC said, we want you to meet him. He lives in a castle in the Tyrol. I said, oh, no, for the first time in my life, I felt shy. I thought, oh, no, 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 no. And uh, they said, we want it, Brian. And they approached Mesner, and he said, an actor? I don't want to meet an actor. They said, well, he's marvellous. He's being a servant to this expedition and to this film. 
is paying tribute to Mallory and his great ideals, ideals that we've lost today. He said, I'll give him one minute. I thought, oh, shit. <laughs> so the BBC, we went to his castle, uh, and fortunately, he wasn't there. They were all over his garden. I was embarrassed. And I was in the corner, and then suddenly, a car arrived. And out of this car stepped Achilles. In the film, we put drums to it. There was Mesner with ringlets on his hair, standing there. And we put drums to it, boom, 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 boom. And I went, Rhino's here! And he turned round, and he looked at me, and he strode over, and he took me by the shoulders, and he looked into my face, and he said, you can stay all day. You're as fucking mad as I am. <laughs> your, your excitement about expression, I mean, to, to go to the early parts of the book, one of the things that you write about very beautifully in it is your relationship with your mother and your father. Yes. And that your father was quite a self-taught man. He was a miner. Yes. He worked very hard, but he had, had fascinated with ideas, and there's a lot of compassion there as well and a lot of him, the things he told you as a child. How important do you think, what is it? Is there a point you go, this is where you really, you look towards the stars, you look towards the mountains, you think, I want to explore? I think... I've mentioned to you that there's no one like you. I do believe that firmly. You've got something that nobody else has got. Nature doesn't cheat. I, I was lucky being a coal miner's son in South Yorkshire, all the coal miners in their thousands could do Shakespeare. They put on Shakespeare productions. They put on opera. They put on musicals. The whole of, the, of, of, of South Yorkshire was full of miners who could recite Shakespeare. They were absolutely brilliant. My father could recite the whole of Julius Caesar, Cassius, and so forth. Patrick Stewart, who was nearby, uh, three or four years younger than me, would come and listen to my father do Shakespeare and be absolutely fascinated. They could all all do it. So it was inspirational. You must understand these were great days. I mean, we had, there were the war years. We had the wooden radios. We had Saturday Night Theatre. We had the Lost World and the War of the Worlds. And, and nearby was the railway station where we lived. And the Mallard came through. I mean, trains today are not trains. They're just fucking electric buses. But this was the, this was the Mallard. Um, with its Bugatti front like a blue Moby Dick and the Red Dragon of Wales and Cock of the North of Scotland. Big steam trains. So it's exciting times. My father, he moved 17 tons a day underground. They talk such shit about coal mining, you know. Um, in South Yorkshire and Yorkshire, when you were sitting there, millions of tunnels underneath. Down there are shop firers. Uh, uh, main gate rippers, coal hewers, all kinds of people are down there bringing the coal up. You know, so one vibrated with kind of the human soul that the coal miners brought to the area. Uh, but my father also played for Yorkshire at cricket, opening fast bowler. He taught Fred Truman. Fred Truman was England's probably greatest fast bowler ever. Truman. And my father taught him his cutters, how to bowl his cutters. And to bowl against the seam, my father taught him to bowl against the seam, against the Australians, and to lift it up into their faces. If you bowl against the seam, it'll go straight into their faces. You can always say sorry afterwards. 
And so, so he, my father was a kind of great cricketer and a great hero of mine. But they all could do Shakespeare. It was, it was an amazing time. And the wooden, they could also make crystal sets. And you could hear the German submarines on the crystal sets. They're wolf packs. I'm very proud, really, that about Britain at the time, we had two Poles living in our house. Uh, and we had two Russians, and they were pilots. And they were flying hurricanes and spitfires. And so, you know, we won the Battle of Britain against great odds, as you know. But we also won the sea battle and sank the Bismarck. We destroyed all their wolf packs, the German wolf packs. And we beat them on land with the Eighth Army, with Montgomery uh, defeating Rommel in the desert. So very heroic times I was brought up in. But a point that I think you're leading to here, Robbie, is that at the age of 14, I always saw cinemas and I saw Flash Gordon, of course, uh, and um, I, I, a wonderful Flash Gordon each week uh, in the Empire Cinema with Buster Crabbe in black and white, who looked like Laurence Olivier. Wonderful, wonderful man. And we'd come out the cinemas each week after each episode, and I always pretended to be Voltan, the Flying Hawkman. I never, never anticipated that one day I'd actually play Voltan in a film, of course. And, of course, say, Gordon's alive! <laughs> Which uh, kind of, everyone kind of, everywhere I go, people want me to say Gordon's alive. <laughs> I was, um, so since I've done the film, uh, when I was in the Arctic uh, going for the magnetic North Pole, suddenly this great Russian submarine came out through the ice. And it, like a typhoon submarine in Red October. And out came the Russians and they saw me. Oh, it's him, it's him, please say. And I went, Gordon's alive! And they were thrown to bits. So I did it to the Russians in a submarine. Halfway up Kilimanjaro, I did it to a, an Outchaga tribesman. Uh, halfway up, he said, oh, it's him. Well, Jamba Buana, it's him. Please say Gordon's alive. Gordon's alive! <laughs> and even uh, the Prime Minister, as well, asked me to do the same thing. Anyway, ask me another question. Well, what I was wondering was about something that it's, it seems to come across very keenly is you have a hatred of bullies. Now, I don't know if that starts with the, you had a school teacher who punished you after you found a, a crested newt, but across the book there are moments where your desire to stand up to those people who are going to... And, and I wondered, you know, where do you see that coming from, that kind of sense of a social justice? Well, I was going to say that at the age of 14, quite suddenly I realised, I was looking at films and seeing explorers, and then I realised that I could explore. I suddenly became aware that I could become an adult, that I could climb Everest, that I could go to the South Pole, I could go to the North Pole, I could go into space, I could go to Mars. I'd always, since the age of six, heard about Mars, and my heart was always broken. I wanted to go there so passionately. All the children who go to the Space Centre in Leicester all want to go to Mars in thousands. And so, but at the age of 14, I realised I could achieve anything. It was an explosion. I suddenly realised that I could be an adult. And I think that's a big realisation for me. And I'm not answering your question, though, am I? No. Um, I don't mind if you don't answer them. No, They're no, all it's, good it's stories. Just, no, but, uh, it's, but it's, I just want to... I suddenly... I suddenly... I suddenly... 
realized that, that I could just suddenly realize my dreams. Uh, that, and I had marvelous teachers, great, great, great teachers. Was it Mrs. Brown? Was the uh, yes, uh, we had, uh, we had a, I, I had a wonderful teacher. <laughs> you done very well. A little teacher called Mrs. Brown who taught me so much. Uh, but suddenly I realized I could be, suddenly, anything I dreamt of, I could do it. I could achieve it. Suddenly, at the age of 14 at school, I was playing Henry V and things like this, and Rumpelstiltskin and all kinds of things. Uh, as I said, I suddenly realized that I could be an actor. I think that acting is quite simple. It's a must. Good, bad, or indifferent, you must do it. That you have no choice, and so forth. Uh, but there's always been a part of me that's always gone on a walkabout. I will suddenly walk out almost on life. And I've done it many at school, uh, in my childhood. Uh, I'd go off for a walk and so forth. Uh, and um, it, this has happened many times in my life. When I somehow don't want to meet human beings, then I want to be on my own. My biggest love in life is silence. The loudest man in show business, I love silence. Total, I love it and peace and therefore meditation. And which I received from the Shankracharya of Northern India, Santanand Saraswati. I received it when I was 27 years of age. But I meditated as a child uh, at school, and, um, and at the age of 14, it became more manifest. I could see, uh, you know, I, 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 I could see the life in leaves. I could see that people were lying, and I could see clouds around their heads and things like that. So I suddenly had these great spiritual gifts. The school were quite concerned about it. And then I realized I wasn't mad, and I suddenly met the Shankarshari of Northern India, and I was given the meditation, a simple one, and it was what I had as a child, totally. So I've always had this memory. I know, for instance, that death doesn't exist. Totally does not exist. The only thing that dies in life is death. As John Donne says, death thou shalt die. But well, that's one of the things that, again, I, I, I love in the book and in the other conversations we've had, which is we can go from shitting on mountains and wonderful, you know, yes. ridiculous and beautiful yeah, to yeah. then just the beauty. And the, these moments, I wondered, when you talk about in the book of having these reveries where you would just be at home with your mum and dad and suddenly you would become utterly still and you knew that you were well and you were fine, but they, for a while, they would think, what's happened to Brian? What, 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 what he's referring to in the book is that um, when I was at school, in a secondary school, Berlin-Lander Secondary School, I had these marvelous teachers, and they were helping me enormously, and then uh, suddenly I would have these mystical experiences. I remember being born, totally. I was born in ice, with boulders around me, and I remember exploding out and, and seeing my mother's and father's face. I've always been alive. I mean, uh, all of you here now, uh, I mean, how old are you? 21, 23, 45, 60, 30? But you've never been dead, have you? You've always been alive. Tell me about death. But you can't because you never, death doesn't exist. And so I've always been alive. And don't have no fear of death. I was with the Dalai Lama when I was doing Galahad of Everest. And he blessed me. The Dalai Lama is my age. He blessed me like uh, his predecessor blessed Mallory. Would he reenact the ceremony? So I met the Dalai Lama, who's, who, who's my age. 
and it was absolutely fascinating. And in Darin Salma, all the children are so happy, flying kites. So I said to the Dalai Lama, Your Holiness, they're all so happy. Why are they? I've never seen children so happy. He said, It's because they know that there is no such thing as death. We teach the children that there is no such thing as death. We have ways of putting them in a state where they experience conditions like death and then they realize it does not exist. In the West, you fear death. You fear what is not real. And, the, and so, so it's fascinating meeting him. Uh, it's interesting meeting the Dalai Lama's my age. Uh, and um, when you're with him, you know, before, you know, before um, I, I went to meet him, I met Bill Roach of Coronation Street. And, and like so many people, they all say, oh, I wish I was going to meet the Dalai Lama. You know, I've got so many theories. I'd love to talk about reincarnation. I've got so many marvelous theories. And he won't answer you. He won't answer one question about reincarnation. He's only interested in love. Anyway, when you're with the Dalai Lama, if you ever get with him, you find that you are totally honest. You know, in, in, in life we lie. We lie in silence. We lie uh, uh, and compromise and lie. With the Dalai Lama, when you're with him, you suddenly are tremendously honest. So I found that I was always very rude to him. Uh, and he's my age. And I say, look at you, look at you, look at you. Have you never had sex? <laughs> no one asks me such things. And, and the man, his, tra his translator, said, no one asks his holiness questions like this. Don't you miss a woman? I mean, you're look at me. When I first met him, I was 53. I said, I'm a runty bastard. I can fuck anything that moves. <laughs> and he said, oh. <laughs> and your skin looks wonderful. You're my age. Don't you miss a beautiful woman? He said, yes, yes, I do. I do. And when I think of a beautiful woman, I do my mantras louder and take a cold shower. <laughs> and it's practical, Brian. So I found that I was always, and I boxed him. His great, he had the boxing gloves of Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, is the greatest heavyweight of all time. But the best was Joe Lewis, the brown bomber, as Ali said to me. I couldn't compare to him, not to Lewis, who defended his title 25 times in 12 years. Joe Lewis was amazing. He's frequently mentioned. And he had his boxing gloves. He had two pairs. So I boxed the Dalai Lama, it was useless. And he said, put your, put your arm, I put up, that's it, careful, your holiness. And so, and he couldn't box at all. And I just touched him on the nose. <laughs> and he, so I boxed the Dalai Lama. But he, <laughs> but he loved Joe Lewis. He, 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 he was kind of astonishing, amazing man. So I, 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 I I'd never witnessed a miracle. And we're walking, I was five days with him. And he picked up a hamadryad cobra. He picked up this big cobra about nine feet long, and its jaw was broken, and it was spitting poison, a king cobra. And he just took it and went, and I watched its mouth be cured, and the wound go away. And he just put it down. He's not in pain now, he's all right. I don't think the Archbishop of Canterbury could have done that. <laughs> I have never seen a miracle before. I was going to take some questions from the audience because I know we haven't got that. We have I'm sorry I can't straight. see you. I love seeing your uh, faces. 
uh, Brian, about five years ago, I was at the University of York, and I, um, I got the student union to rename a, a building there the, uh, the Brian Blessed Centre for Quiet Study. Ah, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> I've been receiving your letters. Oh, wonderful. I, 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 and you've, you've made this, you've made this uh, room, haven't you? Is it yes. the temple to the, the Brian Blessed? Tell them about it. Um, basically, there was a, a building at the University of York that the, uh, the Students' Union wanted a name for, and myself and the University of York Douglas Adams Society uh, got them to name it the uh, Brian Blessed Centre for Quiet Study. <laughs> uh, I suppose what I want to ask Brian is, has it had a positive impact on your life? What, 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 knowing that's there? Yes. Yes. I, I always think, well, it's there. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like uh, the museum, uh, the, the, the railway museum, the Mallard is there, and the Flying Scotsman is there, you know. Uh, and so it's very reassuring to know it's there and that somebody recognises that I can be very quiet and sensitive as well as very loud. Uh, and uh, it's most reassuring. Um, of all the trains, there was the, uh, the Mallard, which was wonderful and green, uh, and a blue one as well, like a blue Moby Dick. But the Flying Scotsman, when I was in the village in Yorkshire uh, and the Northeastern Railway, I never saw it. This wonderful Flying Scotsman, uh, this strange uh, green gauge train. And after many years, when I was 50, you may, a man phoned me up and said, we have a surprise for you. And this is in London. And they sent a please trust us, and they took me in a car uh, to Hounslow. Hounslow. And they took me into a field with the car, and they opened up this great big shed, great big building, and the doors came wide open, and there was, at last, the Flying Scotsman. It was in this shed. So, in a way, I mean, it's marvellous to think that all those trains are in York. The museums there are wonderful. Uh, and York is very dear to my heart. And more so because of this quiet room, which has ab absolutely intrigued me. Another question, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, in the, in the front there, that gentleman in the front. Hi there, Brian. Um, yes. I'd just like to thank Lee. Firstly, congratulate you for all the work you do for animal charities. And uh, secondly, has there ever been a moment where you've been truly lost for words? It's incredible. I've never been asked that question. I've been lost for words. Um, um, <laughs> I think... I think it's when... Uh, I think it's when I... I, I, I you know, it was harder for me than climbing Mount Everest. Um, when I was up there, uh, climbing without oxygen. But it was meeting uh, my wife, Hildegard Neal. Uh, she was in the f series Boy Dominic. She, she's, of course, Cleopatra uh, in the film Antony and Cleopatra with Charlton Heston. And England made me with Peter Finch. And The Man Who Haunted Himself with Roger Moore. And, and films like this. And she was in this series. Uh, and... Um, she, did, she lived quite close by to Richmond, where I was, so I could take her to rehearsals every day. It was Yorkshire television boy, Dominic. And we got on wonderfully well. She said, uh, on, during one of the conversations, she said, um, when I was talking about Rocky Marciano, 13 stone, five and a half pounds, the never-defeated heavyweight who beat everybody, Marciano, 
uh, and I'm describing, that uh, we are all uh, kind of primitive, that mankind is primitive, and we must encourage it. Tattoos, makeup, I mean, even rings on our penises and in our nipples and God knows what. We are very primitive. But I was describing the immense power of Rocky Marciano, who could defeat the giants made of steel. And I met Marciano. I was a Judah third damn black belt, and I wrestled him a bit. It was absolutely marvelous. And she said, you know, you really are the most primitive man I've ever met. She said, there is nothing more sophisticated than the primitive. It is the most primitive thing, pr uh, the most sophisticated thing of all. The true primitive is very, very sophisticated. And we're all primitive. Lipstick, makeup, etc. And as I said, tattoos. Eventually the moment came in Masham, in a hotel. I was going to take her out uh, uh, to a dinner in Harrogate, the Forum. And I moved towards her and I was determined just to kiss her on the lips. And that was required more courage from me than climbing Mount Everest. I was lost for words. Another question? Yes, we've got a, another question out there. Just while you were mentioning, while we were waiting for that, uh, the, you mentioned Peter Finch there, and yesterday I was watching yes. Peter O'Toole tell a lovely story yeah. about <laughs> them once about to be thrown out of a pub, so they thought well, the best thing to do is buy the pub, which is what they did at four in the morning. Now, you talk a lot about Peter O'Toole uh, yes, in the I, book. You were at Bristol together with him. Yes, thank you. I, 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 I'm, I, I sound a bit serious this evening, ladies and gentlemen. No. No, it's, it's what I'm receiving from you. There's gravitas amongst you. And I'm not quite seeing you because of this kind of light uh, on my, my, my damaged eye at the moment. Um, so, by the way, if you ever give a speech, always make sure you've got good sound and that the lights don't blind you because you can forget your mother's name, which is interesting, isn't it? But whenever you give a speech. And wet your lips. We feel nerves in the throat and the lips. Many a person at the Royal Shakespeare Company, they've had to abandon the production while they've managed to stop the person's tongue sticking to their lips on a first night. Anyway, what was that? I was going to... Anyway, of course, Patrick Stewart and I were working-class boys. He was the son uh, uh, of a milkman and me the son of a coal miner, uh, etc. And uh, Judy Dench was only around the corner, a uh, similar background, Judy. All in South Yorkshire, very, very talented, wonderful people. And the impossible happened. Patrick Stewart and I, we applied for a scholarship. We could, it was unheard of, secondary school boys. And we got a scholarship to the Bristol Olympic Theatre School. In Wakefield, you see, it's, it doesn't matter how brilliant you are, how talented you are, we all need help. We need good Samaritans. We need some teachers. We need people to help us. And Patrick and I had enormous help. We had huge uh, Yorkshire accents, which we had to lose, but keep our Yorkshire expression, which I have now. Uh, the accent's gone, but the expression is there, and so forth, to be natural. Uh, and um, so we won a scholarship to Bristol. Unheard of. We went to the Bristol Big Theatre School. So I had to work very hard for my technique, and so did Patrick as well, and many other people. And in Bristol, you had the University Drama Department, you had the Bristol Big Theatre School, and you had the Bristol Big Theatre Company. And you weren't allowed to mix with the company by the school. And they were top professionals. And the leading man was Peter O'Toole. I have never, never seen acting 
like that in my life as in Bristol from O2. I mean, his Hamlet, long before he came to London, was devastating. His Shylock was eight feet tall. And when he fell in the court scene, it was just like some, the, 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 you know, the kind of Statue of Liberty <laughs> falling. In, in, in Jimmy Porter, uh, in uh, Look Back in Anger, amazing, great quality of tragedy and comedy, and so forth. And I was in uh, a school production, uh, House of Regrets, playing a Russian admiral, white hair and a white beard. And O'Toole was in the audience, and you couldn't talk to them, you see. And he came backstage and he said, Hello, Brian, isn't it? I said, yes, I'm Pete. I'm Peter O'Toole. He said, yeah. He said, you work from strength. I work from fragility. Tonight, you worked from fragility. And it was marvelous. National service? I said, yeah, parachute regiment. Rough bastards, the para, they attacked the Irish. I didn't. What were you? He said, oh, national service in the Navy. Is that a problem? And we've, from that day on, we had this competitive nature, physical at times, and so forth. And I did mix with him. And we got on like a house on fire. And once, we were running in Bristol from Lee Woods across the suspension bridge into Clifton. And we, it was three o'clock in the morning, and we bumped into Professor Josephs and Professor Murray. And they'd been to see Sir John Gielgud in The Ages of Man. And they were crying their eyes out. And just weeping and weeping and weeping. And they said, oh, he's wonderful. He, he has such a phenomenal grasp of the verse. It's amazing. You've never heard anyone speak Shakespeare like that. You must go and see him, boys. You must go and see him. You must go and see him. And they walked off. And O'Toole looked at me and said, it's amazing, he said. I mean, they're so enamored with Sir John Gielgud that they fail to realize that you and I are both bollock naked. <laughs> and O'Toole and I had that kind of relationship uh, uh, over the years. I, I, I would say I have never known an actor. O'Toole gets shit press. I can't stand fucking actors' books because they lie so much and they're full of bullshit, kind of pretentious rubbish. You know, they say, I met my very good friend, Gene Simmons, and I met my very good friend, James Mason. I met Harrison Ford and Piers Bosman the other day. I was so, we went out for tea together. Paco, shut up! They, they, but they, just, they don't get into it. And so there's been a lot of crap talked about O'Toole. So I go into a great deal of detail, which I can't now, a oh, oh, 50 years friendship I had with him. I've never known an actor be so kind, so generous, uh, and so perceptive about acting. And I've never known an actor be so evil, shitty, and awful. He's the most awful fucking human being I'd ever met in my life. He could be vicious and cruel and a dangerous fighter. He had big thick veins, he could fight, and so forth. So I was having, always having to control him. I didn't work with him much, when I met him in films, but I had to control him from violence many, many times. He threatened people with death. He was terrified. But yet he had this perception. But if he had a drink, I mean, Oliver Reed, if he had a drink, he had a drink. He was just a roughhouse. 
bugger all. Richard Harris the same, but O'Toole came, he was the creature from the Black Lagoon. He came from hell and uh, he was formidable. But we got on absolutely marvelously and um, the story develops with him, Man of La Mancha. I do the film with him, me playing the villain and we met in that again and uh, uh, country dance and films like that. I'd meet him and so forth. And then eventually I was in Macbeth. I was Banquo. Prior to the production, he rang up. I said, I, I, I never considered him my friend. He said, you are my greatest friend. I've never considered him my greatest friend. And so forth. And he rang up and said, I want you to play Banquo. I'm going to do a great production. I want you in long hair and semi-naked and powerful. You'll be a great king as Banquo. And I'm a sick Macbeth. I have all kinds of designs. And so I said, I'll come over because I'm going to tell you what I think of you. I'll come over to Hampstead. And I went to Hampstead. And um, uh, I got to Hampstead, and it, 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 it's a long story, but I said, I've come here to tell you off. I said, actors have to work so hard to develop their voices, their bodies. Let me explain. Richard Bryars said, Brian, are you not on our side anymore as an actor? You're always doing expeditions, and you're loving that and praising that. Would you, before I die, say something lovely about actors, Brian? So I have to say that I feel that acting is the most difficult and courageous of all arts. And you may disagree. In opera, you can say, well, I've got a sore throat, I've got a cold. In ballet, oh, I've pulled, I just pulled a tendon. I don't feel so good. In acting, your voice, your face, Eyes, nose, mind, imagination, heart, soul is judged. And 90% of the time, you're shot down. And you have to have the courage to go on stage another night or put a foot in front of you, in front of a camera. It requires immense courage. So I went to see O'Toole. I'm going to come to see you, Peter, because I've read in the press how awful you've been to certain actors. As I said, I have never... He's the greatest actor at his best than I'd ever seen. More than Olivier, more than any Redgrave, more than anybody. Amazing. And I went to his house in Hampstead and I said, I've come here to fucking tell you off. Because you shit on your fellow actors. It's awful. You shit on your talent. People have to work so hard on their voices. They have to work hard on their bodies. You can dance. You can do anything. Your voice is, is, is voices within voices. It's so magical that you've got this great fucking gift. And I threw him all over the fucking flat. I threw him over the carpets, I threw him over the sofa, pinned him, held him, smashed him everywhere. <laughs> I love you, I love you, I'm the only person who faces me. You're the only person who faces me. And I, and I got home after roughing him up very badly. And my wife said, good God, what have you done? I've had Peter O'Toole on the phone. He says you've been beating him up. I said, oh, fuck him, I don't give a toss. <laughs> anyway, anyway. You do delightfully describe him as Lord Byron with a knuckle duster. That's right. I think, we've, we've almost run out of time already. I, and I, I have to say that I have never, ever heard write-ups or read write-ups like he had as Macbeth. You have to understand, he was Lawrence of Arabia. He was fantastic in the ruling class. You should see him in some of his films. Astonishing performances out of this world. And they hated his Macbeth. It's a long story, you have to read the book. I itemise every page about Macbeth. 
and when I eventually did it with him. At the end, the critics murdered him. He was on the stock market. Writers, Macdeath, the stock market in America. When he failed, he failed, O'Toole. And then I came back one night, and they'd come in again, the critics. And there was O'Toole in my dressing room. And he was on his knees. And he was weeping. Have you seen? Have you seen what they've written about me? And I said, I think you're dying. I think you're going to die, Peter. I'm sure you're going to die. Come here, come here. And I took him and I rocked him. It's all right, it's all right. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right, it's all right. And I kissed him and I kissed him on the lips and I kissed his eyes and I stroked him. I said, I'm going to tell the audience to go home. You mustn't go on tonight. Oh, no, no, no. I sat him on the sofa, laid him out, and I went down the corridor, and he came after me on all fours. Don't, don't, Brian, I'll go on. I can still go on. And he went on that night. It lasted six hours. And when I died as banker, I stayed on the stage just to hold him all the time because I thought he was going to die any minute. He didn't die. He completed the run, and he had an Indian summer of a career. I have never... I've seen people die, I won't go into that now, in jungles. I've seen people die on mountains. I have never, never, never seen courage like that. I have never seen courage like that. And I put it in detail in the book. The, uh, I'll ask one. By the way, can, we have, uh, can I say that tonight's signer has, in terms of, it's really taught me a few things, words I haven't seen signed before. So, uh, yes, I mean... Look, when I, uh, when I was in, tell them, in Star Wars, George Lucas cast me as Boss Nass, the leader of the Gungans in Phantom Menace. <laughs> and my army defeats the dark side in the film, and I do the last line in the film, peace! And at one point, I'm standing there as Boss Nass, 20 feet high, there's a Jedi, Luke Skywalker, uh, there's a queen, there's and they all kneel in front of me and ask for my help. And I'm this strange Gungan with a face this big, a great giant face. And she says to the queen, please help us. This is for you, darling. This, not the sign lady. <laughs> please help us, Bosnas. Please help us against the dark side. And I went... <laughs> I went, and I went, me so like a dish. <laughs> Maybe we can be friends. And, and George Lucas said, you goddamn fucking mad bastard. That's exactly what I wanted. Did you say fucking mad bastard? Ooh. I don't know where to put my face. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that is, uh, that's all. To, I, I prepared by having seven questions. That was too many, it turned out. You can ask, um, one, ask one Oh, more. we've got one more. Let's take, can we take one more question from the yes, audience? We got, yes, can we have yes. that? Wait a moment just while the microphone gets to... Yep, I think the microphone's just behind you. Thank you. Um, 
my question is, in case you can't see me, I'm dressed as Princess Aura. Um, your experience of Flash Gordon, which has stood the test of time, what's your overriding memory of such a glorious um, film? Well, I, I have to say that of all the films I've done, Flash Gordon, they're going to have a, they're going to have a new uh, opening night, you know, BAFTA in November, and a red carpet. So it's been revitalised, been brought back again, uh, because it is such a kind of cult movie. And I think Flash Gordon is wonderful because uh, it mustn't be criticised, because I think it has this wonderful comic quality, uh, a, a comic strip quality. It's amazing in style. I was thrilled to bits when I was given the part of Voltan in it and so forth, and had a, uh, the most enjoyable film of, of my life entirely. And uh, the, the, I, 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 I did say that everyone asked me to say Gordon's alive. I mean, even the Queen, Buckingham Palace. I mean, was it, you know, Mr. Best, we watch Flash Gordon all the time, and uh, me and the grandchildren, would you mind saying Gordon's alive? So I said, Gordon's alive! Thank you so much. <laughs> so, I, therefore, a, a few, about a year ago, I went to number 10 Downing Street to, for animals, for the elephants and all that. And I'm outside number 10, and they're too early. So I sat opposite in the windowsill, about this long, the windowsill. I'm half asleep, and I felt these hands on my shoulder. There's a prime minister. He said, hello, Brian, what are you doing? He said, nice to meet you. Uh, I, I, I'm surprised to see you not being escorted. I just thought I'd walk here. It's such a lovely day. Would you? I said, I can't go in. And I told him what I was doing. Because I've got to wait for you to go in. Oh, thank you. Come in. And he made me a cup of coffee. And he took me into the cabinet room. And there was a cabinet. And so I stood on a chair. And on the top of the table, he said, please say it. And there I was. Gordon's alive! <laughs> and the Prime Minister said, that'll fucking wake the bastards up. <laughs> and that was the British Prime Minister. But I have to say that... Um, in Flash Gordon, there is a marvellous scene in which we attack rocket ship Ajax. And, you know, you, you see films like uh, Superman and Batman. There's one or two or three men flying. Maybe one, that's all. But there were four and a half thousand people flying in the sea. My Hawkmen, all flying. And it took weeks, uh, days to get it together. The, the, the dynamite, the special effects, the rocket, the monsters, we coming in to attack. And it took ages. And I had this big bazooka, of course, it's made of cardboard. And they said, Right, Brian, are we ready? Yeah, yeah, here we go. And so I just, I just said, Ah, oh, well, who wants to live forever? Follow me, Flash! Squadron 40, dive! And Cut, cut, cut! Brian, we put in the special effects. <laughs> I, I've never felt such a tit in all my life. <laughs> Can you get that? We will, uh, <laughs> we will, uh, there is a, there's a lovely, uh, in, when talking about your, uh, the training that was to, to lose your Yorkshire accent, yes, in which yes, the person yes. training you said, don't worry, Brian, you will never become artificial. I think you've made sure that you've never achieved that. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Brian Bessie. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here.